0: Did you know that God's saving grace is either anticipated, accomplished, or applied on every page of the Bible? Christ is our salvation. It is in Christ that we are called, redeemed, forgiven, adopted, reconciled, sanctified, and finally glorified. It's God's work from beginning to end. And not only that, but God planned our salvation before the foundation of time. God knew the solution even before we caused the problem. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Our current series is The Message of Salvation, and in the first three messages of this series, Dr. Ryken has laid out that we need to be saved because we're sinners. We need to be saved from sin with all of its consequences, from guilt to death, and that because we are sinners, we can't save ourselves. So, Phil, what's next? Well, Mark, that's an excellent review of what
1: we've already covered in this series. That's our real condition before God. We've got a problem because of our sin. We need to be saved. We can't save ourselves. The solution then is going to have to come from somewhere outside of ourselves. And that's what we mean when we talk about grace, a gift from God that comes from outside of us, an unmerited gift of God's favor for sinners. And we call it saving grace because it's what saves us from our sin.
0: You talked today about Christ being the beginning and the end of our salvation. What do you mean by that?
1: You know, the Bible describes Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and that's true in our salvation. And we'll see that as we continue to talk about salvation. All of our salvation is to be found in Jesus Christ from beginning to end. You go back to the beginning, that's predestination. You go to the very end of our salvation, that's glorification. So the whole salvation from eternity past to eternity future, it's all to be found in Christ.
0: So our salvation originates in God the Father, is located in the Son, and is communicated by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Phil. Let's continue our series now by turning to Ephesians 1 and considering what it means to be chosen in Christ.
1: What God does and what God has done and what God will do for our salvation is called grace because it is His free gift, His unmerited favor towards sinners. And It's called saving grace because it meets exactly what we need for our salvation from sin. Now, this message of salvation by grace is really the message of the whole Bible. We could preach the whole Bible from that perspective. God's saving grace is either anticipated or it is accomplished or it is applied on every page of Holy Scripture. That means we'll have to be somewhat selective, and what we'll be doing for the next five or six weeks is taking key passages throughout the Bible which present God's saving message. Really, the place to begin is where we're beginning tonight, and that is in Ephesians chapter 1. I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. What these verses say is that before you were born, before anyone was born, for that matter, before God made the heavens and the earth, even before the angels first praised their Maker, God was planning to save His people from their sins. We were destined to salvation long ages before the world was ever created. If we look at these verses carefully, we discover that this plan of salvation required the active participation of every person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here in the opening chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul praises first the Father, that's verses 3 through 6, and then the Son, that's verses 7 through 12, and then finally the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14, for the part that each one of them plays in salvation. We might put it like this Salvation is administered by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and then applied by the Spirit, administered by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit. Now, it is sometimes thought that the doctrine of the Trinity is unbiblical or at least irrelevant. One famous critic was the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, who claimed that the doctrine of the Trinity, taken literally, has no practical relevance at all, even if we think we understand it. And it is even more clearly irrelevant if we realize that it transcends all of our concepts. Now, it is true that the doctrine of the Trinity is mysterious. It's such a great mystery, in fact, that we may never be able fully to understand it, let alone explain it. But one thing we can do, and one thing we must do, is believe in the Trinity, for that is the way that God has revealed himself in his perfect Word. The biblical doctrine of the Trinity can be stated in seven very simple propositions. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. That's three pr- pr- propositions and then three more. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the father and yet and this is the final proposition there is only one god this very simply is the doctrine of the trinity distilled from the teaching of scripture now what we find in ephesians chapter 1 is those bare propositions brought to life for here we discover the triune god working out our salvation God is who he is in his triune being for our salvation. So here we find that we are chosen by God the Father in Christ the Son through God the Holy Spirit. It's what we've already said, that salvation is administered by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit. Whatever words we use to describe it, the point is that our salvation from sin depends on this gracious cooperation within the Godhead. Salvation starts with the Father. He is the origination of our salvation. We find it in verse 3 and following. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. The Father deliberately blesses, chooses, and predestines His people. And and then He lovingly bestows and reveals and lavishes His grace upon them. This is all part of the eternal plan of the Father who, as we read down in verse 11, works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. And then this salvation which originated with the Father is located in the Son. These opening verses of Ephesians focus their unblinking attention on the person and work of Jesus Christ. His person and work is mentioned no fewer than a dozen times in these verses. What the Scripture is trying to say is that everything... God does. Everything God has done, everything God will do for our salvation, He does in Christ. And really, by listing so many benefits of salvation, these verses set the agenda for much of the rest of our sermon series. Salvation means election, God's choice to save us by His predestinating grace. Salvation means redemption. This is verse 7, the payment of a price to free us from bondage to sin. It means atonement, perfect blood sacrifice which takes away our guilt and secures the forgiveness of our sins. Salvation means adoption, going back to verse 5, that legal act by which God makes us His own sons and daughters. Salvation means reconciliation as we find it in verse 10, God unifying everything in the universe together in Christ, ending our alienation from Him and our estrangement from one another. And then finally, salvation means sanctification and glorification, which are described in verse 12, God making us morally spotless and shiningly beautiful, as spotless and as beautiful as His own Son. You see, these verses contain Virtually the whole message of salvation. The important thing for us to know tonight is that all the blessings of God come to us in union with Jesus Christ. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 3 So that just as we were utterly lost in Adam, so we are completely saved in Christ. It's in Christ that we are predestined, in Christ that we are redeemed, in Christ that we are forgiven and adopted and reconciled and sanctified and finally glorified. Christ is not only the beginning and the end of our salvation, He is our salvation. For in Him we receive everything that we need to be saved. The location of our salvation is Jesus Christ. And then this salvation which originated with the Father and is located in the Son is communicated by the Holy Spirit. This is what we find in verses 13 and 14. We didn't through my oversight, but we should have. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see, the salvation administered by God the Father and accomplished by God the Son is applied by God the Holy Spirit. Really, it only makes sense. The best blessings that God has to give are spiritual blessings, and that means that they can only come to us in a spiritual way, which means we can only receive them by the Holy Spirit. These verses tell us one or two things about what the Holy Spirit does. He enables us to hear the gospel of truth, the message of salvation. And then He changes us from the inside out, which we call regeneration. And with regeneration comes the gift of faith, the ability to believe in Jesus and to trust in His death and resurrection on our behalf. You see, by doing all of those things within us, the Holy Spirit makes our salvation a present reality. He takes what the Son has accomplished in the past and he applies it to us in the present. That's why the Holy Spirit is called in these verses a seal, which in ancient times was the proof of ownership. This sealing work of the Holy Spirit proves that we really do belong to God right here and right now. And we will belong to him for all eternity. Or to put it another way, as it's put in these verses, the Holy Spirit is a deposit, an advanced deposit. He is the purchase of God's spiritual transaction with us. He is a down payment on eternity. The security of our salvation now and forever. You see here in the first half of Ephesians, we have a complete overview of the work of God in saving sinners. All the blessings of salvation come from God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And our salvation depends on the electing, predestining work of God the Father, and also on the redeeming, atoning work of God the Son, and finally on the sealing, guaranteeing work of God the Holy Spirit. When you take all of that into account, anyone who sees the need for salvation can see why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. Not only is the existence of one God in three persons central to our worship, it is crucial to our salvation. I think of one of the most careful explanations of the doctrine of the Trinity. It comes from the Athanasian Creed written sometime around the year 400 A.D., And 1st the Creed states the doctrine of the Trinity. It says there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one Godhead. They are not three Eternals, but one Eternal. You see, that's the doctrine. Then the Athanasian Creed goes on to explain why it matters. It says, he therefore that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. It's a way of saying that the message of salvation by grace depends upon the threefold work of the triune God. Now, our attention tonight is drawn to one of the most amazing things about God's saving work. That is that it began in eternity past. The emphasis in Ephesians 1 is not so much on the Spirit's application of salvation in the present or even on the Son's accomplishment of salvation in the past. It's on the Father's administration of salvation before the beginning of time. Our salvation was predestined, for we were chosen before the creation of the world Whatever saving work Jesus Christ has done in history thus depends on the saving plan of God from all eternity. You know, it is becoming increasingly popular for theologians, including some who call themselves evangelical theologians, to think of God as performing without a script. They say that God is in process But like the rest of us, he is working things out as he goes along, suffering the vicissitudes of life in this universe, changing his plans to fit the circumstances. There is a sort of creative interchange between earth and heaven which allows human beings to influence God, even to change his mind altogether. Therefore, God cannot know the future and never has known the future. Well, that is not at all the biblical picture of God. It's it's true, of course, that God is actively at work in human history. It's true that he blesses the righteous and curses the wicked, that even now he is answering prayers and converting sinners and planting churches, that he's ruling over nature and over nations. Understand that God does all of these things strictly according to the plan he established before he created the world. God's participation in history depends on his purpose in eternity. He is working everything out according to his eternal plan, a plan which predates even the creation of the universe. In the first part of this series of sermons, we sought to understand the problem of humanity, and now we discover that God knew the solution even before we caused the problem. He developed his plan for salvation even before the foundation of the world. Now, it's important to understand that all God's plans were established in eternity. The Bible could hardly be stronger on this point than it is. Look at verse 11. God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. If you ask what is included in God's eternal decree, the answer is everything, everything that God has ever done and everything that God will ever do. In this verse, three different words are used to describe God's plan. One is the Greek word thelema, which simply refers to God's will in general. Another is the word prothesis, which means God's purpose, especially his foreordained purpose. The third is the word boule, which refers to God's counsel or again to his purpose. And taken together, what these words show is that there is nothing which lies outside the divine intention. God does whatever he does according to his predetermined plan. If that's true, if God works out everything according to his eternal decree, then his eternal decree must include the plan of salvation. And this is what is meant specifically by the term predestination. You see it there in verse 5, In love He predestined us. Predestination is one special part of God's cosmic plan. It is His sovereign purpose, His sovereign decision made in eternity past regarding the final destiny of individual Sinners. Now, one obvious implication of predestination is that God's grace is God's choice. This is what is meant by election. Election is God's choice to save particular sinners, selecting them to receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. And In recent weeks, we have already seen that we could never be the origin of our own salvation. We cannot be saved by anything that we do because, according to the doctrine of total inability, we are sinners who are unable and unwilling to come to God in faith. Therefore, if we are to be saved, then God will have to do the saving. And here we discover tonight that our salvation does not depend on some sudden decision, but upon God's eternal decree. If and when we ever make the choice to come to God, it is only because He has already done the choosing. You see, divine election proves beyond all question that salvation is a matter of God's grace. It can't depend on anything that we do because we were predestined to it before we ever did anything, even before we existed. And that salvation which we possess in the present and which gives us certain hope for the future depends on a decision God made in the eternal past. Now, the doctrine of election sometimes causes people to wonder whether they are among the elect or not. Indeed, some people experience high anxiety because they fear that they are not among the elect. And their question becomes, how can I know if God has chosen me or not? Now that is a reasonable question to ask. Salvation depends on election, and it would seem that in order to be sure of my salvation, I must first of all be sure of my election. This question becomes all the more urgent by the fact that not everyone will be saved Theologians sometimes speak of double predestination, which means that according to God's decree, some sinners never will repent and thus finally will be lost, sadly, in their sins. Now, double predestination is not a biblical term. The Bible nowhere speaks of anyone being predestined to hell. It reserves that term, predestination, for the salvation of sinners unto eternal life. However, even though it is not a biblical term, double predestination expresses a logical truth. If God has made an advance decision about which people he will save from their sins, we may infer that he has also made an advance decision about which people he will leave in their sins. The proper theological term for this is reprobation. It means that when God established his plan of salvation, he decided to pass some sinners by. If we think about that, even for a moment, the prospect is so terrifying that it is little wonder that the Bible should urge us, indeed command us, to make our own calling and election sure. In other words, Christians are commanded to seek assurance of their election. So how can you be sure that you are among God's elect? Now, here it helps to remember that the elect are chosen in Christ. We emphasized this earlier. All the blessings of salvation come to us in Christ. An election in Christ is the only kind of election there is. What God has chosen to do is to unite us to Christ, putting us together with him for our salvation. And therefore, to ask if you are among the elect is really to ask this question, are you in Christ? If you want to know if God has chosen you, all you need to do is know whether you are in Christ. And for that, you do not need to read God's mind You do not need to climb up into heaven and peek in the book of life. No, all you need to do is know Jesus. That's all you need to do. That's all you need to know. Jesus Christ is the location of salvation. Every spiritual blessing that God has to offer may be found in him, including election. And if you are in Christ, you must be among the elect, for the elect are chosen in Christ John Calvin once warned that if we have been elected in Christ we shall not find assurance of election in ourselves no rather Christ is the mirror wherein we must and without self-deception may contemplate our own Election, it's a way of saying if you want to know if you are elect or not, the thing that you need to do is look to Jesus. And the way to make your calling and election sure is to be sure that you are joined to Jesus Christ by faith. Now, since election is in Christ, it is usually best understood after one becomes a Christian. In fact, the doctrine of election is sometimes referred to as a family secret within the church, although it's not really a secret to anyone who knows the Bible. While you are still outside God's family, you may not hear about predestination at all, and if you do, it hardly seems to make any sense. The truth is that once you are in the family, it makes the most perfect sense in the world. Indeed, it helps everything else to make sense, and particularly to make sense of your own salvation. One of the former pastors of this church, Donald Gray Barnhouse, often used an illustration to help make sense of election. He asked people to imagine a cross like the cross where Jesus died, only much larger, so large that it had a door in the center of it. And over the door were written these words from the book of Revelation, Whosoever will may come. These are the words of the universal and the free offer of the gospel. By God's grace, the message of salvation is offered to every man, woman, and child. The message of salvation is for everyone. Everyone who is willing to come to the cross is invited to believe in Jesus Christ and to enter into eternal life. And you see on the other side of the door, a most happy surprise awaits the one who believes and enters. From the inside, as Barnhouse explained it, anyone glancing back can see these words from Ephesians written above the door, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that is the way it is with election, that it is often best understood in hindsight. It is only after coming to Christ that one could possibly know whether one has been chosen in Christ those who do make a decision for Christ find that God made a decision for them in eternity past. It's like the words of the old 19th century hymn, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior true. No, I was found of Thee. Now, the doctrine of election is a difficult doctrine. There are a number of reasons people have difficulty with it. I'm not going to take the time to go through them now. Some of them I will discuss, no doubt, during our question and answer time here at the front of the church after the service. And I think really the main reason that election is difficult is because it shows in a way that nothing else can the sovereignty of God's grace. In other words, it proves that ultimately our salvation depends entirely on God and not on ourselves. Salvation is neither initiated by human choice nor appropriated by human effort. It begins and ends with the sovereign grace of God's electing will. And You see, this inevitably shatters our pride for it dashes any last hope of snatching glory for ourselves. And that is why we may be sure that whenever the doctrine of election produces any kind of arrogance, it is not being properly understood at all. It is sad, and yet I think true, that some Christians who hold to the doctrine of election are conceited about their status as God's chosen people, and being numbered among the elect becomes a matter of pride for them, there. Attitude becomes, I'm one of the elect, and you're probably not. Now, obviously, people who take such an attitude do not understand election. Indeed, we may wonder whether they have really received God's grace at all. When it is rightly understood, election provides the basis for genuine spiritual humility. God's unconditional election proves our total depravity. It shows that we do not deserve to be saved. It shows that there is nothing in us worth saving at all. Therefore, if God has chosen to save us, it can only be because of his unmerited favor. And once he has saved us in this way, there's nothing left for us to boast about except for God and his amazing grace. In other words, election is all to the glory of God. The glory of God, this is the beginning as well as the end of our salvation. We've already seen that the reason God made us in the first place is to glorify Him forever. We've already seen that the glory of God is the reason that our sin is such a disaster. It means that we can no longer glorify God because we are so busy seeking our own glory. And you see, God will see to it. That he ultimately gets all the glory that he deserves. And since he is glorified whenever he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, then one of the primary ways that he glorifies himself is through the salvation of sinners. We are saved for God's glory. Salvation begins with God's electing grace. You know, in reading Ephesians chapter 1, it's almost impossible not to be affected by its mood of joyful exuberance. Really, this passage contains, and you've probably noticed it tonight, some of the most complex theological concepts raised in the entire Bible. Yet here, the Apostle Paul is not really teaching doctrine at all. What he's really doing is simply praising God for the glory of His grace In fact, in the Greek original, this whole passage running from verse 3 to verse 14 is one long sentence punctuated with praise. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he chose us in him. Verse 5 and verse 6, in love he predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace. Verses 11 and 12, in him we were also chosen in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. And then finally at the end of the passage, you also were included in Christ to the praise of his glory. This torrent of praise is not so much theology as it is doxology. The Bible wants us to do something more than simply believe the doctrine of predestination. It wants us to experience the joy that that doctrine brings to Christian life and worship. And we will understand this best when, whether we speak of the origination of election in God the Father, or whether we speak of the location of election in God the Son, or whether we speak of the presentation of election in God the Holy Spirit, we realize that all of this is only... For the glory of God. Our Father, we do praise you for your sovereign grace and for your sovereign choice. Those of us who know Jesus Christ in a saving way understand so clearly that we could never have come to you unless you had first planned for us to do so. And we give you praise that for the fact that from beginning to end, our salvation is all of your grace. And for that, we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher, Dr. Philip Ryken, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Riken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Rev. Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at Alliancenet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.